Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Next Sunday morning, November the 4th, we will conclude our studies in the book of Revelation. I love you for that. Oh, my word, I don't think our online viewing community just felt the sigh of sadness flow through the room. Ah. <sighs> I can, I, can, I, can, I can die a happy man. I mean, I didn't write it, so I shouldn't like be, take credit for it, but I'm glad that you're enjoying the scriptures. Yay for that. So we're going to go, but we're getting ready to start a new book series soon. But uh, next Sunday, we'll, be, we'll have a, a time of communion. I've asked Aaron uh, to, to give me the opportunity. I want to lead worship with you guys next Sunday morning, and then we'll have communion together and pray together, anoint you with oil, and then uh, we, will, we will conclude our studies in the book of Revelation. But I hope that we will conclude it both this week and next week in a way that reminds us that just like the subtitle of our series is this, living with a view of eternity. We need to keep one eye on eternity. Amen. And not, not, and not because we, we just want to be on the first bus out of here, but because living with a view of eternity keeps us faithful and focused and fruitful and fervent. I, w- I happen to reference this in my, <laughs> in my Fundamentals of, of, of Public Speaking. It's an introductory liberal arts class that I get to teach at the university as well. So it's just a speech class. I say, in other words, it's not a theology class, even though all truth is God's truth. You know, I don't need to go through the disclaimers. Anyway, it's just a liberal arts thing. So Somehow I referenced this. Oh, I referenced that, that idea. One of my students, who you might be watching, uh, said, raised his hand, he said, Hey, Dr. Dab, can you go through your whole spiel on that? And apparently I have a spiel, yeah, apparently, because he watches on YouTube and he likes it. He says, go through your whole thing on that. So I thought, well, redundancy must have been effective, all right? So, uh, but the other part of that spiel is we are never, we are, we are uh, uh, we, yes, we are never as fruitful and cold and distracted when we forget where we're going, when we forget that we have a promise waiting for us. Chapters, Revelation chapters 21 and 22 describe the promise of the age to come. And because we're only going to say it in this series a couple more times, would you all say that out loud with me? The promise of the age to come. It is Revelation chapters 21 and 22 describe for us the new creation. It depicts and describes heaven, what heaven will be like. Can't make this, to me it's exciting and it brings clarity that what you have seen so far up until chapter 21 in the book of Revelation is a recapitulation of redemptive history. What's been happening, what will happen, how the, the judgments of God, the workings of God, the providence of God, the, 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 the church and her life and, and the, 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 the spiritual warfare that, that, that exists and will exist up until, we would say, the parousia, up until Christ returns for his bride. And then that's the end. And then after the end is the promise. And that will be eternity. So all that you're waiting for, all that you're hoping for, is described in Revelation 21 and 22. All the inheritance, all the promise, all the hope, all the stuff that you read about in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I'm here to tell you that it's a new thing for me to understand. I don't think, oh, I'm worried about somebody getting upset about this. I don't think you can understand the Old Testament until you have read through Revelation. 
Because when you start reading through the prophetic literature of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and some of the books of the Twelve, and you start reading some of the things they're talking about, if you, don't, if you haven't seen the book of Revelation, you'll read that and go, wait, that's weird. That sounds weird. That, I don't know if that ever happened or when that's going to happen. But when you read Revelation, you see that the Old, the Old Testament prophets had the same Holy Ghost as you and me, the same Holy Ghost that arrested John, and that same Spirit of God has been speaking through the millennia because he's always had this promise in mind. He's always had this promise for his people. He's had good things for us here, but this has never been the end of his design. What you, Your life here has never been the completion of his promise for you. There's always been something more, and anybody who's ever breathed in the presence of God has somehow caught a whiff, a glimpse, a, a vision of something that's yet to come. And that's what we're looking at today. There is more than this. There's a hope. There's a promise. And it is so unbelievable. It is so magnificent. There are hardly words for it. And it's going to take time without end to enjoy it. Praise God. Well, I'll praise him. Me and Gordon will just praise him. And you all can just join us for the ride. Each of the things that we see in chapters 21, and really even more so in chapter 22, each of the concepts, each of the types and symbols that we see here represent a fulfillment of long-term biblical hope. Everything you see is a fulfillment of something that has been a long-term hope. Each of the things that you see represents, ah, I didn't anticipate I was going to have so much joy just to start. Uh, yeah, each of the things that you see here, you see, I'm just, this is like going on a ride for me. As soon as I open it up, it's like the, the seatbelt goes click and then tunk, 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 tunk. it's just exciting. Uh, uh, each of the things that we see here represent a reversal and a restoration of what was lost in the fall. Everything. Everything that you see here shows that God has reversed it. He's redeemed it. He's not lost a thing. He's not lost track of anything. He never will. He, can't, he doesn't lose track of a seed. And he's never lost track of a promise. And everything that he had in mind. Oh, 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 you thought it was gone? You thought it was lost? You thought it was destroyed? Oh, no, no. He's the redeemer. He's the redeemer. He's the rescuer. And every single thing that sin has marred and destroyed. And the beauty of it that was lost. Oh, my God. He's so good. The blood of Jesus is so powerful. It gets poured over that thing and it gets brought back and restored and reversed and made more beautiful than ever he takes ashes turns it into beauty he takes your spirit of mourning gives you a garment of praise he's a redeemer he's a restorer yeah how do I really feel she says Tell myself, write it down and say it slow, and you'll be fine. <laughs> oh. But see, every every single thing we see here, even if even if you and I we can read it, and I know because we don't know, we don't know things. It takes forever. Some of the things we read, and we think, "Well, I don't even understand that." What does that mean? And that's okay. Give yourself a break. 
You don't have to understand it completely. You don't have to get all the stuff. Because you know what? There's a lot of what we would call biblical theology. You could take chapter 22 out and pull it out like a three-dimensional telescope, lay it out across the canon of Scripture and say, oh my goodness, this has been part of the plan and design and development of God for the millennia. And look at all the epochs and look at how it all lines up. And isn't that amazing? But if you can't do that, if you don't see that, you can all, no matter what, if it's in there, here's what all you got to do. Just look at it and say, Wow! Respond with wonder and with gratitude, knowing that every single thing we're reading here is magnificent and it is praiseworthy because it is our promise. And what we see here informs our faith and our focus. It gives this what we see, this promise, our future gives us the ability to focus now. Remember, folks, you and I, we are stamped and marked and sealed with that promise. Because of that, we live now like the people of that promise. As exciting as it is, it cannot remain a pie-in-the-sky thing for you and me. The truth and the power of the world to come has to become part of our focus today. It, that, this is because this is a word of prophecy. Not just prediction, but prophecy. Prophecy speaks to us in the now and calls forth a response from the hearer. That's all right, bro. It's a good confession. That's a good. I mean, if your phone's got to go off, let it be the Nicene Creed. That's fine. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. So Revelation chapter 22, we're still, <laughs> I promise we're going to finish, but we're still in the first five verses. I know there's a lot next week, but next week, I can't even tell you the title because every time I try to say it, I start to cry. It's not a creative title. It's just really, really Mufasa true. I'll tell you next week. Here's, here's where we are today. Let me just catch up from last week. Remember, this was all supposed to be one week, but I just couldn't finish it. So let's catch up. Here's 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from a lamb in the middle of its street. On the either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Just give him praise for that. Thank you, Jesus. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Remember, that curse is no longer there. It's also illegal now. It's not legal. It's not legal. It's not legal. What did we hear the other day? Somebody's kids got caught up and got taken from them but with, more, with uh, addiction or something. We were talking about something about how addiction steals families. And, just, and I said, no, you see, that's not legal. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. That's part of the curse. When your children get carried away into captivity, that's not legal. Don't let it. Don't think for a minute. Well, that's just the way it is. No, it's not. We don't cope with the curse. We overcome it. Well, that's last week, so I can't go back and say it again. Now, that's only 3A. So today we pick up <laughs> at, the, at the semicolon, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. We're still talking about this big city, the new Jerusalem. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. There you go. That's right. I, I don't know how I'm going to say that and everybody not just fall over dead right there. They will see his face. 
Oh, let's just praise him. Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we bless your name. We honor and reverence you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Wow. Wow. Not a single rule of homiletics are we following. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night and they will not have the need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them, will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Why, this is a good room. I almost don't need to say nothing. Let's talk about it a little bit. Picking up right at verse 3 where it says, And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. The throne of God has been the centerpiece, has been the epicenter of the book since chapter 4. Since John, it was after he got talking to those seven churches, he heard a voice that said, come here, boy. Well, I said something like that. He said, come on up here. And then he, he, he went through a door in heaven and boom, he saw the throne of God in the heavenlies in chapter four. And we talked about that right away. And Aaron wrote a great song about it. And he, he, and he did. He saw it. I'm so proud of the Browns. They so, there's such a, a harmony in the voice of the spirit in the house. But right away, Aaron read that and said, look at that. All, when all of the beautiful chaos of, of, of the throne room and all of the activity and all of, this, of the wonder and the beauty, he said, look at that. And all the attention still is on the guy in the throne. And that's the point. When all of that stuff, all, and, and listen, Aaron, you should feel good about it because that was the, the big postulation of, the, of a serious Ph.D. guy in my, in my seminar. He was like, I want you to notice that in chapter four, blah, 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 and the guy in the throne. I was like, yeah, I heard that. Anyway. <laughs> no, but really, this, the throne is the epicenter of, of heaven, of the, whole, of the whole scene. Everything that happens afterwards, angels are coming out from that place. There are decrees coming out from that place. It's a, it's a, it's a place of wonder and mystery. There are peals of thunder and stuff going on. And so it's both wonderful and awesome and, and, and terrifying all at once. But you need to feel that all through the book because then everything changes. After the, after the final judgment and after all the verdict has been done and after the old, way, the old first order has been, has been done away, now the throne of God is in it, is in the midst of the people. In the age to come, his throne will literally be among us. God will reign both transcendently and imminently with us. He will reign with us in immediate proximity. There will be no physical, spiritual, dimensional distance between you and the very throne of God. This is, again, the fulfillment of the very hope that we've, that's been articulated already. Listen to verse 21, or chapter 21 again. He, the, the, the Lord says, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell, abide, tabernacle among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. This will be the new normal for eternity. And because of that, listen, because of that, again, we've got to hear it again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because, and there will be no longer there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. That's what it means to have His throne near us. 
his, his, his reign and the throne of God will be among them. One of the other ideas there is that his reign will be perfect. There will be no hindrance nor any resistance to his will. Right now, you and I contend for his will, do we not? We pray for his will, and we should. We, and that's really the point of this passage right now is that if, if we see that our promise is the perfect reign of God, the perfect will of God, then that gives us focus and intent today. That means that, that you and I today don't have any permission. We don't have any wiggle room. We don't have to abide. We shouldn't ha- our expectometer should not be less than as in heaven, so on earth. That's, that's because that's what's coming. That's the end result. There's no last word. He's got the last word. And what we see in our promises, there's going to come a time where there will be absolutely no hindrance. And if that's where we're going, then that's what we contend for today. That's what we pray for. That's what we declare. That's what we believe for. And we don't, you say, well, when do we stop? Until, until there's no difference between heaven and earth. Until there's no difference, until I got every, with every last breath, every last fiber of my being, we keep believing. We keep believing. We keep believing. Yeah, we have setbacks today, of course. We have setbacks. Everybody in this room, their family has had challenges and blowbacks and shipwrecks and stuff. And yet in the midst of it, the, the, the kingdom of God keeps rising. And when the enemy has done all that he can, and it looks like there's destruction, and you've lost your family, you get an idea. And then all of a sudden, the grandbabies are getting baptized today. Because can't, you can't stop him. You can't stop him. You know why you can't stop him? Because there's something greater coming. There's a greater force coming. There's a, there's a greater gravity at work. There is an avalanche of grace and glory and dominion that is on the way. And you can't stop it, so you might as well surrender to it now. And if you're resisting it, if you're not agreeing with it, you're on the wrong side of an avalanche, my friend. You better get on the right side of it. Get on board and ride this thing in because there's an avalanche of the dominion of God. The next part says, and his bondservants will serve him. We see that here, the fullest expression, the most perfect fulfillment of bondservant here is that for eternity there are those who will serve God on the throne, serve the Lamb in loving devotion. Not by force, but by the exercise of their free will. They are, they are the servants and the representatives of the one on the throne forever. We can see that as our perfect, pristine destiny. And if that's our destiny, then we know we ought to serve him here. We ought to serve him here. The New Testament already calls us his bondservants over and over again. And the New Testament already anticipates that we will serve and represent him now. You are already his bondservants. Don't, you, it, it, it's, it's a foolish concept for you to think, well, someday I'll serve him. No, you serve him now. Because here's the deal. He is looking for, when he comes back, he is going to be looking for those who are already bondservants so that he can reward them for eternity. He's going to be looking for people he can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. Verse 4 continues and says, they, the bondservants, will see his face. Yeah, some of you just can't get, can't, can't get around the glory of that. That's more than we can really describe, isn't it? 
all we can just sort of do is see law right there. We, they will see his face. They will see his face. This is, this again, this is so full of rich uh, scriptural symbolism. A couple of few things, let me just bring to mind to help you, help us see, help us to appreciate this. King David had sons, and we know that there was some real tragedy that, that erupted, especially with his son Absalom, who killed one of his brothers over a, a horrible thing that happened. And eventually, Joab convinced David to let Absalom come back and be, rest, and be restored. So there, even though it's not a perfect uh, picture or a perfect metaphor there, there is symbolism. You have a, you have a David, the Davidic king, David often represents Christ, or, and then, therefore God. And then you have a, a fallen son. Who lives in separation? The fallen son who has a right, who has a right, who has the right, who's the heir, but he's a fallen son and he's separated. Then there's a mediator. Somebody shout. Then there's a mediator who acts in behalf of the two, and the son is brought back. But here's where it breaks down, and here's where the picture we see this. The Bible says, and and that you can look at look at the short story in Second Samuel 14, and particularly verse 28, is that that Absalom is welcomed back into the city. But here's the verse 28, but he did not see the king's face. And too many believers, friends, really live like that, that their Christianity is, well, I'm, I'm just forgiven. I've been welcomed back into, into, into town. I've, I've, I, can come, I can come back home, but I can't look at his face. And, they, and the thing is that, that you might be grateful for that, but that what it turns out is that, that, that breeds, that develops a very shallow Christianity, a resentful, guilt-driven uncomfortable, dis- disquieted Christianity. And sons who don't see the face of their father eventually, <laughs> as you can read in the story, start lighting their neighbor's fields on fire. They start, they start fires. And there, see, there wasn't, Absalom didn't have real peace. He didn't have real contentment until he was brought before David's face. Now, that story doesn't work out very well for anybody, actually, but I always think about that. Uh, that that redemption has to include the goal of redemption. The cry of our heart is to see our Father's face. Moses experienced something that we're talking about in Exodus chapter thirty-three and verse eleven. That we uh, the 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 writer uh, probably Moses says the most unique thing that 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 we can find in the scriptures. There it says, "Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend." Now, you and I can either look at that and say, wow, that's really unusual. Wouldn't that be great? Or we can see it as a testimony. Or we can see it as something that, that is in the design and the desire of God. That this is what God wants. This is unmediated fellowship with God. Seeing God's face is the cry of the human heart. Look at Psalm 42 and verse 2 if you'd like to. You can just write it down. You don't have to, sometimes it's hard to turn all the time, but write this down if you want to. Here the psalmist expresses his deepest longing. He thirsts for the living God and asks this question. Your Bibles might read it this way. When shall I appear before God? That's accurate, but the most wooden expression of that is this. When shall I see the face of God? This is the cry of humanity since we were expelled from Eden. We no longer beheld his face. But in chapter 22 we read there's a there's a new Eden. There's a new time. 
and we will behold him face to face. But you know what? Once again, although, although that represents, I think, something perfect and something really, really, really wonderful in the future, we don't have to live now in a, in a, with a famine of, from God's presence. We don't have to live distant from him because the, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, he said, you used to be distant, you used to be excluded, but here verse 2.13 uh, 2, says, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That's an important passage, brought near. That means that's, some, that's, a, that's a passive thing, that's something that, is, that, he, that, that has been done to you. The blood of Jesus has brought you near. And I think I've told you this before. If you want to look at that the most, the, the most closely, that means you have been squeezed close. Because of the blood of Jesus, you have been squeezed close to God. And then Paul says something else in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he's talking about how Moses, the very thing I talked about in Exodus, how Moses used to go and meet with God and when he'd come away, he'd put a veil over his face. But Paul says that we behold as in a mirror, with unveiled faces early, he said, we behold as in a mirror the glory of the, the, glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That right now, he says, in this, in there's a way that you and I are beholding the glory of God. At least that is our opportunity. We should, we should draw near. We should stay close. We should make his presence our priority now. If that is going to be our joy for all of heaven, then we ought to now make, make use of, make, be good stewards of the very promise we have now because we have his presence now. And probably, probably far more than our current experience. Probably more than we have measured so far. Because the scripture describes a reality that's available to us now that is absolutely amazing. And that shouldn't make us frustrated or give up or feel guilty. But it should say, hey, wait a minute. That my, my relationship, my closeness to God, my awareness of his presence should not be determined by my frame of reference or my past experiences. It should be determined by the promise I see in the scripture. The second part of the phrase says this, his name will be on their foreheads. Now, that almost sounds odd unless we can understand it from the, the context and the, the evolution of the, the scripture and the material in the scriptures. We've already seen this in chapter 7 in verse 3 when they said, no, no, don't turn anybody loose. Don't let anything happen until we have put the seal of God on the heads of his bond servants. <laughs> you know what that means? That means that, that, that that's, you're not, we're not waiting for that seal, that name on our heads. And that doesn't have, that, we're not waiting for that to happen until eternity. That means we show up in eternity and we realize that this whole time we've had that seal. That the moment that you named Christ, that the moment that you, that you called upon the name of the Lord, somehow God in his way, and really we know by the Holy Spirit, reached down and sealed you. You know, he didn't put a Tupperware lid on you. To, some say that means that he puts a lid on you to keep you saved. Well, that's not what it means. What it means is it's, it's his mark on you. It's his authentication on you. That's his seal on you says you are mine. You're authentic. You're mine. You belong to me. You're on my bus. You're with me. 
and I will protect you. I'll keep my eye on you right now and forever. That if God has marked you, you can't get out of his sight. He'll see you whether you go down to the depths or up to the heights, whether you get in the ship and go up to the moon and come back. You'll never lose sight of you. Never lose sight of you. Never lose sight of you. You wander away. He'll still see you. Don't, and you know what you don't have to do? You don't even have to fear death. They may lower you six feet under, but you know what? He still sees somewhere there's a mark. Now, we know to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord in spirit. What we know is this, that he cannot lose you. Once he has touched you, you're his forever. Somebody should be thankful for that this morning. And then what it says right there is that those who are right there, his name will be on their foreheads. We should see ourselves as forever and starting right now, we should see it. We should see ourselves as belonging to him. If you believe that you belong to him, how might you live? If you believe that you belong to him, that you are his, how would you obey? How will you pray? How might you praise? How might you even be free to love others. Verse 5, and there will no longer be any night, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord will illumine them. There will be no darkness. Somebody say it again. This is the second time that we have seen or heard this particular aspect of the new creation. There will be no darkness, and the Lord God will be their lamp, their light. Why is that? that if we heard it once, and it's significant. We hear it twice, and we better pay real good attention. If we, when we listen in closely, we understand that, that, once again, Revelation is giving us a picture, a fulfillment of long-term prophetic hope. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 19 and 20. It's a longer passage. Let me read it to you. It says this. No, listen, this is Isaiah. Isaiah. This is way, 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 way before, okay? Before Jesus. Way before, Okay? Right during the time, just even before Judah goes into exile. Here's Isaiah writing. No longer will you have the sun for light by day. Nor brightness will the moon, nor for brightness will the moon give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And your God for your glory. Your, listen, how he says, your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. So here's the prophetic idea. The, 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 the metaphor, the promise is there will be no more need for a different light. You will no longer be dependent, not either on the sun or the moon, or Revelation says, or even on a lamp. You will no longer have to rely on or look to another source of light. Why do we look to or rely upon sources of light? Because we fear the dark. Because, the dark, because, because dark is bad. Dark bad need light. Okay? I mean, this is fundamental. Why do we look to? We, we, why would we grasp for the, the light of a lamp or, 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 or eagerly wait for the 
rising of the sun. <laughs> Some of you are like, I hope the sun stays down a little bit longer. You're sleepy. Okay? But, or, but the, idea, the idea is this, that darkness represents uh, hopelessness and confusion and fear and, a, and, and, and lostness. And that's why the very last line of, the, the, of Isaiah helps us understand what's happening. It says, you're not going to need that light. You're not going to need that light because God will be your everlasting light. And here's the punch. Here's the punchline. Are you ready for it? Here's the punchline. The days of your mourning will be over. That's why it means no darkness, no mourning, no weeping, no, gr- no grief, gone. No sadness, no confusion, no fear. It's gone, gone, gone. In the age to come, there is no night. There is no darkness. The Lord will be their light. In fact, he says the Lord, Annette Nazab, just trying to be so literal, the Lord will illumine them. Well, okay, I, that might be hard, but let's try this. The Lord will shine on you. No, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. That's from the very same chapter. That's at, chapter 60 ends and begins the same way. Chapter 60 ends with him saying, the Lord will be your light and the days of mourning will be, your, will be over. How does it start? It starts with the thesis statement. Arise, shine, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He's shining on you. This is your hope. This is your hope. This is your promise. And folks, if it's your promise, if this is your future, it can be your focus now. Because right now you live as people who are marked by, covered by the light of God. He's shining on you even right now. It's going to get brighter. It's going to get better. That's your future. But you've got the pledge. You've got the down payment. You've got the installment of this thing right now. And right now, you are the light of the world. We have to believe and behave like we are people of the light. Here's a contrast. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. It's already here. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. But light is our destiny. It's our present destiny and our calling. This is why Jesus said, listen to this. We already said it, Matthew 5, 14 and 16. Now, listen, you are, you can't get more clear than this. You are the light of the world. If we understand now from a biblical theology perspective about the difference between light and dark, you understand what we're talking about here is that you are the reflection, you are the radiation, you are the emanating presence of God. You are the sign of what is to come. You are also the sign that there is truth, there is righteousness, there is hope. You are supposed to be the sign bearer, the signpost that there's nothing to fear. You You are the evidence that the boogeyman has been beaten. That, you can, that there's nothing to fear anymore. That's you. You're the light of the world. And how do you know that? You can't be hidden. Look at verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And what will they do? They will glorify your Father in heaven. You see how that works? They see you and they look to the future. They look to you and they say, wait, there's, there's more than this. The way you live now is evidence of the age to come. The way you live now 
is evidence of the age to come. Verse 5 concludes, And they will reign forever and ever. We will reign with him. You gotta, I want you to feel that a little bit. They will reign forever and ever. We will reign with him. They is still referring to the bondservants who, we, who have seen his face and bear his seal. Those, in other words, those who serve him will reign with him forever. This is what you were created for. This is, and this is an interesting thing because I think probably some of you in the room have, are experiencing a similar sentiment that I know I have articulated and probably still feel. And honestly, we see it in all of the, all of the, 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 the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They obviously feel the same way. They all have crowns and thrones, but nobody wears their crowns or sits on their thrones. They're always falling themselves on the floor. Right? So it, it may be that I say you'll reign with him, and many of you think, oh, I, you almost might say to yourself, I have no interest in reigning. I just want to lay there on my face before him. He can have all of it. I get that. I totally get that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that you've just got to, it's going to, it blows your socks off. That's not what he wants. He did not, you are not his minions. You are his bondservants. Bond servants are those who, who willingly devote themselves to their master in love and they become part of the household. This might take more faith for you than anything else to understand this part. He does not want to reign over you, but he wants to invite you into his dominion. I can't, if you think about it long enough, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I, I think on the, on the dadometer, I'm a relatively good dad, right? So I'll just look at me for an example. I didn't have kids so that I could leave them in a shed in the backyard. Right? I, wa- I don't ever want them to leave my house ever. You are created not so that he will have someone to just have his minions, but you were, you were designed for him. He wants to share his dominion with you forever. Not, and, and, and he wants you to have dominion, not so that you will reign over others, but to, so that you can live with dominion in your hearts. And if that's true, you can live with dominion in your hearts right now. Because right now you are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. And right now you are seated with Christ. What? Yeah. Listen to these a couple of passages now from Ephesians as we wrap this up. Listen to the Apostle Paul talking to us about our current status in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, he talks about all that God has done. He said, these, this, which these he brought about in Christ when... He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All right, so where does Paul say that Christ is seated? He is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. And now he describes that as, listen to verse 21, he is far above all rule 
and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. See, in the mind of, in the mind of heaven, in the view of heaven, there is not a distinction. He's already Lord of all. He's there, we, that's why the wars that are described in Revelation, they're over before they start. Because they're already won. He already has dominion in this age and the age to come. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jump to verse 4 of chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, we already talked about where he's sitting. And, and the Lord says here through Paul, Paul says, and God, because of his grace, his mercy, his, his, his ridiculous kindness, has brought you up and set you right next to him. Right now. And he did this so that, in verse 7, so that in the ages to come, see, now every time you read that now in the New Testament, anytime you read things like that, you need to understand, oh, just stop real quick and go over to 21, 22 of Revelation and go, oh, that's what they're talking about. Whenever you hear the age to come, so that so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The very fact that he wants to share his dominion with you is an expression of his, of his eternal grace and kindness. We will, never only, we will never look backward in eternity and remember. Remember when God was gracious and kind? <laughs> all we'll do is remember, we will remember the, the greatest redemptive act in all of eternity and celebrate the echo of that kindness and grace for eternity. You are right now seated with Christ. This is your status now, and you, it will eventually be fully realized in heaven. But you don't have to wait. You must not wait to live like it. Don't wait until heaven to start living like you're seated with Christ. Live like royalty now. I don't mean demanding to be treated royally. You're priests, not pretentious. Okay? I don't mean demanded to be treated royally, or, or I certainly don't mean looking down on others like they are paupers. That is the human counterfeit of divine royalty. See, our king took off his kingly garments, wrapped himself with a, with a towel, and washed the feet of those he was about to die for. That's what our king did. You know why he could do that? Because he was absolutely secure. He knew where he was coming from, and he knew where he was going. And so he, had, he, he, was, he lived without threat, threat to his ego or value. Can you imagine living without a sense of threat to your ego? Living with dominion, then, is living like Jesus. In your character, live like Jesus. In your conduct, live like Jesus. In your confidence, live like Jesus. 
Live like Jesus, the king who modeled it before you. This is why Paul says again, what does it mean to live like royalty, to live with dominion in your heart now? It's Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You live today, whatever you do, whatever you say, it's as if Jesus were doing it himself. You expect to act like him, look like him, express like him, have the same kind of results. Because right now you have royalty. Dominion is your destiny, so live like it now. In the age to come, my friends, the Lord reigns, and so will you. Consider what is revealed to us about our promise and our inheritance so that you will know how you should live right now. Your future determines your focus. You have been stamped with the future. Therefore, believe that you belong to God and draw near to Him. Walk in the light, living righteously. Live with dominion in your heart, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and live with an eye on eternity. Let's stand together as we close. Father, I realize that I could spend Many more days just looking into the, the symbols and the pictures and the emblems here that I see, we see in the scriptures. I realized that I could look into them and look into them and look into them and never exhaust their richness and their meaning and the hope that they present to us. But Lord, we've seen enough this morning that we know this, that there is a great and powerful age to come. There is an eternity awaiting us And we have been already stamped, marked by those powers. That we understand today that our future must determine our focus. We are to live as people of that promise in this day. I thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. I thank you, Lord, for the avalanche of your glory and dominion and authority and beauty and glory that's coming. And I just pray that all of us get on the right side of it. Help us to live on the right side of it. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and will do for eternity. It's funny how, Lord, right now we sing songs about how much you've done. And the truth is, the half has not been told. The truth is, we don't even understand all that you've done or all that you have planned to do. So all we can do, honestly, is give you thanks. Let's give him thanks. Come on, church, just really give him thanks. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come on, bless him. Just give him thanks. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We thank you and praise you. We overflow with gratitude for all that you have done and all that you're doing and all that you have promised to do. Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise in the mighty name of Jesus. And that's why... His praise will forever always be on my list. Amen.
Amen. Hey, listen, would you be kind to someone on your way out today? Make sure that you say something kind. Go live with dominion in your hearts.